Hi, and welcome to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan, and I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. And my guest today is David Schickler. He is the author of The Dark Path, which is just out from Riverhead. So The Dark Path, let's talk about what it is, literally. The Dark Path is the path behind your house in upstate New York, where you grew up as a child. And it's there that you found sort of a religious experience that you weren't finding in the church that you grew up in. That's right. I grew up Catholic, and my parents were quite devout. I was too, but church and the sort of bright, extra cheeriness of church wasn't quite right to me. I liked, I sort of found more out in the woods and in the darkness. I really was attracted to the sort of mystery of God and this dark, deep, mystical that I felt was sort of there in the woods. And in any case, that's literally the dark path. And metaphorically, the dark path is the sort of twisted, confusing path that I took toward almost becoming a Catholic priest in my early 20s and then abandoning that painfully for the life of being a writer and, you know, a lover of women and a film writer and all of the things that I am now, I guess. And you write about how when you were an adolescent, call it the priesthood ache, and you describe it as a daily need, but also as a fear and a confusion, this, this emotional turmoil. Yeah, I felt I really loved Mass and the ceremony of Mass and the Eucharist itself, and I felt very peaceful at Mass. It was hard because, you know, in Catholicism, the priest is the man. The priest is up there on on stage, as it were, sort of leading the charge, and my faith sort of taught me to want to be the best person I can be. I don't know if my faith taught me that or just my own personality taught me that or American competitive capitalism taught me that. But I sort of saw the priesthood as the thing that I wanted, the thing that I wanted the most. That turned out not to be right, but I put myself through a great deal of turmoil thinking that that's the path that I was going to follow. And in the midst of all that desire, the largest obstacle towards the priesthood for you was... Chicks. Chicks. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I grew up in a house with three sisters and no brothers, and my sisters constantly had friends over. Not that you have to grow up in a house full of your sister's friends in order to become attracted to women, but it certainly didn't hurt. You know, I grew up very much in the thrall of women and loving girls and women and loving talking to them and being around them and their senses of humors and my sisters were dancers so all their friends were over often you know dancing and I would go to these recitals and so that was very very much a part of the way that I grew up and experienced the world then you know I got to college and felt very specifically in love with one woman began dating her and sleeping with her went through this sort of time where I felt like I was in this love triangle where it was God and myself and this woman Mara that I dated in college. I sort of felt like it was going to go one way or the other. I tried to a certain extent to write the book suspensefully because I felt like I was in a suspenseful place at that time in my life. I was going to either end up with God or I was going to end up with Mara. It's interesting, like trying to write it in that state of suspense because on the one hand, you know, we don't know the particular details of the story, but on the other hand, we do know you're not a priest. That's so. right. You do know the ending to a certain extent going in, but I think there's a sort of star-crossed lovers uh, story in the book. I think it's a, a good read for that reason. You know, the, the I think everybody knows what it's like to struggle with how to fit their faith or their belief or their spirit, spirituality into their lives. It's also the case that, for me, the line between sexuality and spirituality is an important part of the book, too. 
And it's also an important part of your writing, as you describe it in the memoir. In particular, I mean, you've written fiction before this. There's a couple of passages where, I mean, even before you're a published writer, your father finds your fiction and he's appalled by it. But then even after you become a published writer, remember there's this one scene where you're volunteering at a religious organization and they find out that you're the author of Kissing in Manhattan and they're like, whoa, we can't have you around. Yeah, they basically sat me down and said, we took a look at your book. Your Kissing in Manhattan was my first published book, a collection of linked short stories set in New York City. There's this one guy who's this sexy Lothario who ties a woman up to his bed while there's a party raging in the other room. There's some salacious material in there. And the people that ran this particular place that you're talking about, where I was volunteering, you know, read it and basically said, we, we can't have somebody who writes this sort of thing volunteering at our at our organization and you know i tried to sort of fight and defend and say that the way i wrote and what i wrote is just merely the real world but they weren't having it i will still say that it remains the case to me that if you talk to people particularly to young people about sexuality with a white gloves approach i i, I still know you know in churches that i've been to or gone to that when you approach it that way people will often run the other way if it's not this elemental if it's not acknowledged as this elemental vital part of our humanity then uh, it's really easy to lose people if you don't acknowledge that and it's also really easy for people to try to tamp it down in themselves and then have it flare out in all sorts of crazy ways later in life it clearly seems that it was flaring out in your life particularly in your graduate school years uh yeah i dated a uh i dated a girl who was uh uh what can i say she was she was kind of all over me and <laughs> and wanted to be you know would beg me in bed to choke her to death literally to death and i would try to indicate that that was both a not going to happen and b i was pretty sure a felony so i <laughs> let her know in no uncertain terms that that probably wasn't going to work out you know, and a lot of this is in the book. I had some colorful, wonderful, but confusing interactions trying to figure out how my sexuality was going to fit in with my faith. But that edginess between spirituality and sexuality remains a big part of my writing. My fiction writing, my television writing on the show Banshee that I created, the, the main bad guy on that show is a guy named Kai Proctor. It's a guy in the small town in Pennsylvania who grew up Amish and then ended up becoming a sort of the gangster of the town, the Tony Soprano of the town, has all sorts of horrors that he makes dress up in Amish outfits. So, you know, some people would say I'm still working through stuff. For me, it's just kind of uh, entertaining to walk that line. The furthest along the path towards the priesthood that you got was when you were in college, Georgetown, and Georgetown being a Jesuit university at all. Do you think that in any other sort of Catholic university environment, I mean, particularly with a different order of priests um, rather than the Jesuits? Well, I can say that, you know, without naming names of certain other orders of priests, there, you know, my well, I can say my sisters went to a, a bazillion high school. The faith there seemed to be a little bit more top-down, like this is what God says, this is what Jesus says, and now you're going to do it. And a lot of people would believe that that's what all of the Catholic Church is like. 
But Jesuits are quite independent-minded and fiercely intellectual and, you know, have run afoul of the papacy a number of times over the course of, the, you know, the history of the order. Of course, now we have the first Jesuit pope ever in Pope Francis, which is really probably quite a coup in the Jesuits' mindset. I was attracted to the way that they wanted you to reach out with your whole intellect and all of your imagination and all of the all of your human faculties to the nth degree and that was very attractive to me i was a smart student and they were they're a great teaching order i respected a lot of the jesuits that i had as teachers I respected slightly less the one that grabbed my ass one day. This is in the book, too, a guy that I sort of started to trust a lot and was talking to a lot about potentially joining the Jesuits and, you know, had a little bit of a breach of trust when the guy kind of made a move on me. It was one of the things that really brought home to me just how much the priesthood, not only are there not women there, there's no vibe of women there, the whole energy of women and dating. You know, it's something you're going to have to sacrifice. And in the end, that was something that I couldn't countenance and that's something that I couldn't take. I actually do think that there are some Jesuit priests and other Catholic priests who do a wonderful job with their, with their celibacy and it frees them up to take care of a lot of people. But I don't know that it necessarily absolutely has to be that way. And it certainly was a deal breaker for me. You know, it's always hard to think in these or to pursue these kinds of hypotheticals or counterfactuals. But if it had not been for that sort of like a exploratory pass, oh, I don't think I don't think it ever would have worked uh, for me. I think yeah. I, I think I would have gotten much much closer and then flamed out that much harder. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, and I may have actually ended up in seminary, but knowing myself and my makeup and you know, the, the truth is, is that the priests that I respect the most who are celibate priests, they, it's a decision and a discipline for them, but it's not a daily turmoil. For me, it was a daily turmoil, even thinking about it. So to some extent, you know, the book is just about, you know, the main part of the book takes place between when I'm 18 and when I'm 24, not to make people go running by saying it's a coming of age story, but a lot of people have some pretty confusing times in their early 20s. This just was mine. And there, were, there was also a lot of beer and travel abroad and friendship and romance and all these things. It's just that the one through line was that I, I thought that the one thing that was going to come out of all that for me would be priesthood. And it ended up not that. It ended up the life of writing. What was it like for you as a writer? I mean, you've written fiction for the last... 15 years and you're writing television now as you said but what's it like tackling this stuff head on i always just look for the strongest possible story i can tell at any one given point and it just struck me a few years ago that those years for me between when i was 18 and 24 were kind of a wild ride and would make a good read there were some good main characters there was this girl that i went out with in college my father is a huge character in the book. I show up a lot, some bullies and bad guys along the way, and it just seemed like, a, you know, it seemed like a suspenseful story, and the fact that it was true and was my own life, I basically felt like if I was ever going to write about any time in my own life, you know, in any particular way, that those were the specific years. I do also write in the memoir a little bit about my childhood and a little bit about when I was 30 and older and stuff, but the bulk of the memoir is that 18 to 24-year-old. I wrote it many times, actually. I wrote it four or five times before I got it right, before I got it first-person, present tense, and having it unfold very novelistically. 
it was it was more episodic when I first wrote it. It took me a while to figure out, oh, the path, the path, that's the through line, the dark path, and you just cling to that and keep to that. Obviously, I knew myself, I knew the material, I knew that my take on God and my approach to spirituality was darker than some other people. When I was growing up, you hear a lot about Jesus as the light of the world, and people would wear bright orange hats and bright yellow hats and bright yellow dresses in church, and all of that just tonally for me and who I am as a person, it just didn't land. I'm a night person. I'm a night owl. I started going to more or less midnight masses at Georgetown, and I loved it. I loved the quiet. I loved the mystery. I felt like, you know, I felt like the truth, this this will sound, to some people this will sound pornographic or blasphemous, but I feel like the truth is best revealed kind of like one blouse button at a time, as it were. I mean that in terms of sexuality and I also sort of mean that in terms of how people find their way spiritually. I wanted, my relationship with God is not sexualized, but my relationship with God is something that for me was very full of mystery. And I wanted revealed like a little bit at a time instead of this blaring, you know, I thought that too much light would ruin it. To, to answer your question more specifically, take a memoir like The Glass Castle. You okay. know, it's a wonderful way to structure a memoir, the fact that there's literally a glass castle that this young woman's father promised to build her out in the desert, and it ends up being this allegory, you know, this running metaphor throughout the book for the pie-in-the-sky dream life that the family could maybe someday have, and of course they never do. But she returns to the image over and over and over again, and it took me a while when I was working on this material of almost becoming a priest and what I went through in college, and I just remembered, oh, the path, the path from growing up, that's the perfect way to to keep on, to frame, you know, to use it as a framing device for this, for this memoir, to keep coming back to that. Circling back to something that you just said about religious pop culture that you know, the stuff that you said is a little too full of the light of the world. And there's a great line towards the end of the book when you're 40 years old and you're going to Mass again. And you're talking about how, and these are my words, not yours, but like most of, you're talking to God and you're saying like most songs and books and things like that that are overtly about you suck. Yes, I think that's absolutely the case. I think that most, I'm not talking about memoir now, I'm talking about songs you know, I, I I can't get on board with Christian rock and roll. I just want rock. It's like, if there's going to be any grace in it, then let me listen to Led Zeppelin, and I'll I'll look for the grace myself. I don't want somebody else telling me in a blatant way, God's right here, God's right here, God's right here all the time. Uh, it just never works. It doesn't work in in movies. You know, it has to be come at glancingly. The movie The Mission is pretty good with Jeremy Irons and uh, Robert De Niro, one who thinks that might is right, and one who has, who's basically a pacifist, and they're both Jesuit priests trying to, you know, two radically different approaches to what is the truth and what is right. That one was good. A lot of the other ones, are not so much. <laughs> and you're talking as somebody who has spent his entire life talking to God, wanting him to be right there, and as far as you could discern... You know, you weren't getting any signs, you weren't getting any messages, you weren't hearing the voice. And then ironically, the one point at which it does seem like God is showing his hand, he doesn't show it directly to you. That's right. He shows it to my wife, a Protestant. Come on. I actually don't think that it's, certainly the Catholic Church would never say, guess what, each of you is going to 
hear from God literally once in your life. And, but that's how I felt, like looking as a child, especially looking at the Bible. I felt like, well, you know, Moses, a lot of these guys heard the voice of God like one time. And then they knew. Then they knew what they were going to be. And that's sort of what I craved. And to a certain extent in my prayer and various different ways, I was looking for, if not literally hearing God's voice, some kind of a sign, some sort of a uh, a shove toward a uh, a path or a vocation. That reminds me of another great line that happens during your college years with the, the Jesuit priest who was mentoring you. And before that fell apart, he said something like, you know, if you're going to go look for that kind of fight, there's a chance that God will bring it to you. Yes, that's right. I had gone on a retreat. There was two kinds of retreats that they had at Georgetown. A silent retreat where you actually do the spiritual exercises of Ignatius Loyola. And that's a very intense retreat where you don't talk for five days. And then there's a more social retreat where they talk about community aspect. And that retreat had a lot of, you know, somebody was playing the guitar and singing Shower the People. There's a lot of sort of upbeat, wholesome skits. And it was just too nifty. Um, it was too spiffy. It was too cleaned up. And I couldn't quite get on board with it. And I told this priest a couple of weeks after that retreat, I can't take that super shiny approach to God. You know, for me, there's there's a dark danger to belief and to faith and to the Jesus that I see in the Gospels. If I'm going to find my way forward as a Christian and as a Catholic, that's the God that I think I'm going to meet. And he basically said, careful what you wish for. If you go looking for that kind of God or that side of God, he may choose to, presuming God is there, may choose to give you what you quote-unquote want or reveal himself to you in that way. The way that it, it turns out, again, not giving too much away, but that period of 18 to 24 was about the seeming impossibility of reconciling your religious impulses with your sexual and your literary impulses. It feels like the David Schickler who is telling this story at the end of the story is somebody who has found a way to integrate all of it in a stable life process. <laughs> <laughs> you calling me stable here? <laughs> Stabler than you were. <laughs> stable enough to, uh, to write this book. Stable enough that I'm absolutely for sure at peace. I'd like somebody else who interviewed me asked, do you ever still think maybe you should have been a Catholic priest? And the answer to that is absolutely not. If when I was in my early 20s, people could have been married Catholic priests, I may well have really looked into that and may well have ended up going that way. But by the same token, because there's, there's, there's many, many people who say, well, why didn't you just become an Episcopal priest? And I can answer two ways that one is I was maybe sort of just in one, so deep in one club or bitten by the bug of one faith tradition that I'm not sure that quite would have worked out for me. But B, the other answer is that I just wasn't supposed to be a priest. I, you know, I don't think most people are meant to be priests. I do think that the Catholic Church could use, in fact, we just had, you know, an archbishop the number two at the Vatican say just a week or two ago, the celibacy in the Catholic priesthood is a matter of tradition, not doctrine. It's an open question. Well, it certainly didn't feel like an open question when I was 22 years old, really putting myself through hell, trying to decide whether I could do this or not. But yes, I am completely at peace with my decision not to do that. I'm very happily married guy with two children and... My own take is it would be it would be an insult to my wife and children for me to be saying, 
First of all, it's not true, but second of all, it would be an insult to the life I've chosen and tried to build to say, oh man, I really should have gone the other way on this. Aside from the priesthood, the other aspect of this is that it also sounds like you've come to a point where you are comfortable writing about the things that you write about. I mean, I don't know if you still get the kind of criticism that you got early on from religious readers who were like, you can't be religious and write this material, but it seems like you've figured out a way that it's like, look, I am religious, I write the things I write, yeah, That's how it is. I very much want readers and viewers for my television show and anything that I write for the screen, but I, I don't worry too much about what any particular group of religious people might think of my of my writing. I take a certain amount of comfort in the fact that Alfred Hitchcock was a practicing Catholic who wrote some pretty wonderfully disturbing screen stories for us and you know and directed them you know the bible itself is certainly full of if you know where to look is certainly full of all sorts of pretty hellacious stuff murders and wars and rapes and famine and terrible terrible things happening and you really can't have drama without those things you know you can't have drama without conflict you can't th this goes to what I w what we were talking about earlier the idea of christian rock and roll or Christian filmmaking, God forbid, you know, the idea of trying to bring an explicitly Christian message in in a song, you know, then you you sort of rob yourself of whatever the song needs to tell you what the song is gonna be. You can't tell I mean that's for some people that that's an excuse that I use to write tawdry things, but it just happens to be if if I smell a message in a movie or in a song, I just why don't you just tell me the message instead of singing me the song? Just write it on a fortune cookie note and pass it to me instead of dressing it up in music and trying to trick me or something. The Dark Path is the big story of your life. And I guess having written this one memoir, do you see... The other one that I'm planning is much more about trying to be an artist, you know, full-time writer and a husband and father. Partially that story will be a story of what it's like to just try to make it in America right now as a family. Religion comes into that to some extent. But the other thing is, is that I hate in my blood, in my bones, I bristle to the depth of my being at famous stories of the tempestuous, hard-drinking author who was a jerk to his wife or beat his kids and it was just the muse and that's why he was that way i just i can't countenance it even for five minutes it's you know unbelievably irresponsible that kind of behavior towards women and children and towards spouses is like it's anytime that you're that you're being cruel and finding a convenient way to excuse it is problematic to me and that's not to say that i myself don't sometimes feel when i'm watching elmo for the 500th time, oh my God, just get me away from this so I can go live the artistic life that I want to be living. But, but it doesn't make me, it doesn't make me jump ship to, to feel that way. I mean, that just means the kids need to go to bed. Well, that sounds like a memoir that we should really look forward to down the line. In the meantime, we have The Dark Path, which is a great memoir. I've been talking to the author David Schickler about it. I'm Ron Hogan, and you have been listening to Life Stories. Thanks, and I hope to see you again soon.